Warning, this show may contain adult content, language, and humor and is intended for mature audiences. If that's not you, please stop listening now. Nothing you hear on Sex and Science Hour is intended as medical advice, financial advice, legal advice, therapy, or really anything other than entertainment. Please take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Oh, and if you're hearing us on an affiliate network, the ideas and views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the network you're listening on or of any sponsors or affiliate products you might hear about on the show. Now that all that's out of the way, let's start the show. This is Sex and Science Hour with Brian Sovereign and Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Get your freak on. Welcome to Sex and Science Hour, boys and girls and non-binary people, I guess. <laughs> we welcome all genders here on Sex and Science Hour. Brian, you and I were just uh, doing our part to swap some skin flora before the show began. This is true. Yeah. We were making out. And that's right. <laughs> and I have an article here that talks about just that. Would you like to hear it? About making out? Yeah, it's that's called... one of my favorite things to do. All right. <laughs> now, a little bit of shop talk here before we start. Brian suggested to me that in segment one, instead of it being like a wild card, we should try to pick stories that have at least some sex in them. But definitely, if it can get sex and science, since this is Sex and Science Hour, that would be even better. And I said, you know what, Brian? You're a smart man. And that's, <laughs> I agree with you. So I'm going to try to find stories that have both sex and science in them. And I did. So that's, that's how we got this story. So anyway, uh, from the New York Times, lovers share colonies of skin microbes, study finds. Whoa. Isn't that interesting? Colonies. Colonies. Yeah, entire cities, bacterial cities on your skin. I, I can't. All right, go. <laughs> <laughs> This, so this is hot off the presses, July 31st, 2017, by Aneri Patani. Couples who live together share a lot of things, beds, bathrooms, food, toiletries. But one thing they might not expect to, scare, to share is skin bacteria. In a study published Thursday in M Systems, an open access journal of the American Society for Microbiology, researchers studied the skin microbiomes of 10 sexually active heterosexual couples who live together. A microbiome is a mini ecosystem of bacteria, fungi, viruses, and other microorganisms living on and in your body. Every square centimeter of skin hosts between 1 million and 1 billion microorganisms, according to the study. After analyzing 330 skin swabs collected from 17 body parts on each participant. Okay, so it's not just like one body part. No, it's all, it's a representative sample size. All right. Now, can you imagine being in this study? They're like, okay, get naked. Now hold still. We're going to swab a little cotton Q-tip over various erogenous zones in your body. Yeah. That must have been an interesting study. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, hopefully no microscopes are involved. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Not that I'm afraid of this sort of thing, but yeah, I can bet. <laughs> okay. So after analyzing skin swabs collected from 17 parts of the body on each participant, the researchers found that each person significantly influenced the microbial colonies on a lover's skin. 
In fact, computer algorithms relying on microbial data were able to accurately match couples with up to 86% accuracy. So they, they were able to tell who the couples were by how similarly their skin flora matched. Wow. <laughs> with 86% accuracy. See, this is one of those things where it's like, you know, never ever use this line, you know, hey, can I, you want to colonize each other or <laughs> can I colonize you, baby? I'm pretty sure that's cultural appropriation, yeah. Brian. That's, that's not cool. We don't want your, col- you got to decolonize your mind and decolonize your skin at the same time. No, I'm just kidding. <sighs> yeah. No, I mean, it's good. We we all have bacteria all over our skin. There's a lot of attention that's been paid to the bacteria in our guts, inside mm-hmm. our bodies, which is, you know, technically... We think of our guts as inside of our bodies, and I guess technically it is actually outside of our bodies because there's a hole that goes all the way from your mouth to your ass. Yep. And (laughs) what's inside your body is on the other side of that wall. So, you know, some people think of the gut as technically outside the body. But anyway, it's it's located inside of your abdomen. It's just, you know, a fun thing to ponder, I guess you could say. Um, But not a lot of attention as until just recently has been paid to the bacteria that are all over our skin. And, you know, we can go in a pool that's full of chlorine that's meant to kill off all the bacteria. We can take a shower and scrub every inch of our body. But those little buggers come back (laughs) because they're deep inside of our pores and they somehow like always bloom again after we get rid of them. So did the study say like that there's any effect of this? uh... Um, There's a little more to the article. It it didn't really say that yet, but it wouldn't be such a far leap um, to think that this could have an impact on um, like skin diseases, you know? Well, I would think, yeah, skin diseases. I'm sorry, keep going. And also, um, you know, there's a lot of attention being paid now to the ways that the bacteria in our guts or the the organisms like candida yeast affect our things like food cravings. Right. In some ways, they even drive our emotions and our behaviors right. in terms of seeking out certain foods that are sugary or whatever. And so it might not be a far stretch to say that maybe the skin bacteria do too. Maybe they make you, maybe they influence the smell of your pheromones or something and they make you more or less attractive to other people. Well, that's a, so, so here's a huge topic. And, and I hate it because I keep forgetting what the, the actual name of this is, but there's, there's your smell is a huge part of what exactly, you know, like, like smell can, oh, can literally attract information about the immune system called the MHC uh, major histocompatibility complex. Yeah. Right. So okay. apparently there's some information about your immune system that's encoded in your smell, your body odor. Right. And that is smellable to partners on a subconscious level. Yeah. And people seek out, they have a bias towards people that look vaguely like them, like are basically of their own, look like they're of their own tribe or whatever. Well, But, but also I'll... people have this drive to seek out partners who are genetically different from them so that their offspring would have the best chance of being resistant to a lot of different pathogens. Right. But the smell is, is theoretically in a, in a, uh, an aspect of attraction, yeah. you know, the it's chemistry between people. Right. And so I guess I kind of wonder if, you know, this, this colonizing of skin bacteria, <laughs> you know, the skin bacteria swapping that's, that's going on between people. Like, I wonder, I mean, over time I, you know, I've been in relationships where, 
you know, over time, the, the, the woman will say something to the effect of, you know, even when I, like I smell really bad or something because I've been working out or something like that, they love the smell. And I, <laughs> who says that, Brian? Cause I say that. Well, you say <laughs> that too. Right. That but yeah, me. but I'm just saying like, I wonder if this is kind of a part of it. If, if like, if there's just this commonality that happens between where, where you get used to it in yourself and then you start to enjoy it in somebody else, but it comes from constant close contact. You know, yeah. uh, I mean, or even, even, you know what else I wonder? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just, you could say I'm, I'm, you know, reaching, you know, reaching with this, but there's the theory that what, 10 hugs a day, right? That's that, that it increases intimacy and bonding. Yeah. But I wonder if part of the hugs is actually sharing all of the skin bacteria and that creates some <laughs> kind of like wild connection. This is the thing. There's so much like there's there's so much to 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 human relationships to human interactions to who you are that goes far beyond the brain it goes far beyond what we what we generally uh, expect as consciousness it's all quantifiable it's mm-hmm. perfectly scientific there's no quantum nonsense to be had here okay but it's there and we keep finding out more and more about it you know i mean I, yeah a lot of the yeah a lot of the stuff that sounded the the conventional wisdom that i guess has sounded kind of woo woo is now being able to be explained by very real science. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the chemistry between people, now I think you're really like, no, no, there is a quantifiable it's really chemistry. chemistry. Yeah, there's between a people. reason it's called that. I think. Why do people kiss? There's another thing. Well, isn't no that kind other... of an evolutionary? Well, there's mystery? a lot of speculation about yeah. that, right? Because a lot of other animals don't kiss. Sometimes they sniff each other's butts or whatever yeah or they might lick each other for grooming but they really don't kiss and make out the way that i mean we do, do. that but across every culture ever there's kissing in every human culture right and people speculate that the reason is because you're you're actually tasting chemicals in that person's saliva uh, and maybe even hormone levels you're assessing right. their fertility or whatever <laughs> mm. and you're seeing if you have chemistry with them yeah yeah, I get it. I mean, it really does put a new spin on like the idea of somebody rubbing off on you, right? I mean, like, like this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, it does. You're you're really you're really doing that, you know? <laughs> yeah, like right. this is what happens over time. No, you'll get used to me once more of me is on you. <laughs> <laughs> so you know the body part, according to this study, that was most likely to host a common microbial community that's shared by a couple. What body part do you think had the most similar bacteria on it? between a couple oh i like i I don't know where everywhere that they swabbed i mean i kind of want to say the ass but i don't know (laughs) it was the feet the feet yes the feet oh that makes sense it makes sense because you're both walking around in the same house so you're going to pick up whatever's on the floor and you're going to step where the other one stepped as well yeah 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 (laughs) yeah no that makes sense you know i used to live with somebody who was a doctor and worked at a hospital and i got one of those monster pimples that like turns into a big pus filled oh, monstrosity. <laughs> we were just turning everybody on and now. And they, te- I went to the doctor. I, you know, he goes, he looks at it. He goes, oh, that's going to be lanced and drained. I'm like, all right. So I go to the doctor and they're like, oh, yeah, try some antibiotics. I'm like, oh, this isn't going to work because they're not going to get in. Mm-hmm. Took the antibiotics. They didn't do anything. They took a little sample from it and they grew a culture and they came back and said, it's MRSA, the methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is a bacteria that's responsible for a lot of these big skin boils. And it's found in hospitals quite often. So I think I picked it up from him. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is something. 
Like this is this is new, right? And yep. It's uncharted territory. <laughs> the chemistry between us, the bacteria between That's us. That's right. Now, they say that people are likely to share gut microbes with people in their family if you live in the same household. How that happens, I don't want to know. Because they say that when you poop in the bathroom, there's (laughs) droplets that that get airborne and can land on your toothbrush. So maybe that's a root. Wow. Yeah, that was a bomb I kind of dropped in the last minutes of this segment. But anyway, very fascinating stuff. There's more interesting stuff coming up here on Sex and Science Hour. Nanorobots. What could they do for you? Stay tuned for segment two. Clean up that skin bacteria. Hello, everybody. I would like to cordially invite you to the Sex and Science Hour podcast community on Facebook. Just go to Facebook.com, type in Sex and Science Hour podcast community, and you can join a group of dozens of very cool listeners. I hope it'll be hundreds at some point, but we're still building up. So you can be a part of it. Be the change you want to see in the world. We've already got some really interesting discussions going on in the group about psychedelic drugs for PTSD and mental illness uh, to a woman who was born without a vagina, which we're going to cover on the show. So if you want to take part, Sex and Science Hour podcast community on Facebook. And you will have to answer a question to let us know that you're a real person and not a spammer. Now back to the show. This is Sex and Science Hour, segment two. Now, the reason I said that you have to be a real person and not a spammer to join the group, the Sex and Science Hour Facebook group, Mm -hmm. is because we actually had our first spammer just today. What happened? Um, basically, it was a person that joined the group who had another podcast that was about sex. And it, it sounded like it was kind of similar to our show. But of course, nobody's exactly the same. I mean, come on, we're unique. Yeah. Nobody can be sex and science hour, right? Yeah. There are many imitators, but there's only one original. <laughs> <laughs> so this person had another podcast and they joined the group and I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe they want to network with us or something like that. Maybe they want to have have us on their show. No, the person never interacted in the group at all and then posted a spammy post trying to promote their own podcast. So I said, I'm not going to tolerate this. And I gave him the boot. Nice. <laughs> yes. Nice. You got to make some hard executive decisions, I'll yeah. tell you, when you're the leader of a group like this. You know, I'll tell you. So I have a I have a Facebook group for my podcast as well for Sovereign Tech. It's called Sovereign Tech Uncensored. Mine is like a secret group. So you have to friend me for even, for me to even let you in to it um and i'm not i mean i'm particular but i'm not terribly particular necessarily of who i led in but i make it clear that you know i'll boot anybody at any given time the nice thing is is that kind of when you lay that out suddenly people are like they'll 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 private message me and say do you mind if i share this content do you mind if i share my my show or they're afraid you're gonna censor their free speech brian yeah i mean well (laughs) i mean i hey i'm a huge believer in speech free zones so uh (laughs) and but like, or they'll say in the post, they'll type out, they'll say, and if you think this is improper, please just delete it, you know, cause they just don't want to get banned, you know? And so, I mean, people, and that's great because people, people can be respectful. People are at your feet well, to make sure they still have access to your content. I think it's tacky a lot of times if it's not relevant or if you're not somebody that engages with a lot of people in a group to be sharing your shit because it just seems like okay no you're just marketing yourself and you're an asshole oh yeah at least engage a little bit at least make an effort to interact with the people instead of just promoting your stuff without ever even 
interacting at all. Yeah, because if you're interacting, oh yeah, I mean, please share your content. Like, get other people on board with your stuff. I mean, it's it's the you know the arena of ideas, and I think that's wonderful. So I'm not against people sharing stuff, but like, I want to know that that like you care. And yes. Anyway, it, I it's, think everybody does. They feel mad if you if you don't. Yeah, yeah. It's just nice to get respected for all that, and I'm glad you 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 didn't didn't stand uh, for for any disrespect from this other person. I agree. I'm proud of myself right. too. I'm really growing a spine recently. <laughs> you know, I've been a little spineless in the past sometimes. Not spineless, just like, you know, I don't like conflict. I don't like making enemies and you know, I want everybody to get along. Um I prefer to kind of like keep the drama in my life to a minimum cuz it's just more efficient that way, right? You get more done if you're not constantly you know, babysitting some bullshit. <laughs> sure. No, it's true. So I try to keep it simple. And, uh, you know, m- most of the time that means avoiding conflict and controversy. But sometimes you got to take a stand, you know, when yeah. it conflicts with your moral principles. Sometimes so anyway, you got to say that's I'm enough. I'm getting off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear about these nano robots, huh? Nano robots. Or nano surgeon robots. Nanites. <laughs> this is from um, Star Trek The Next Generation? No, it's from oh. The New Scientist from August 2017. Okay. And uh, the headline is Tiny Robots Crawl Through a Mouse's Stomach to Heal Ulcers by Timothy Ravel. Tiny robotic drug deliveries could soon be treating diseases inside the human body. For the first time, micromotors, autonomous vehicles, the width of a human hair, have cured bacterial infections in the stomachs of mice using bubbles to power the transport of antibiotics. The transport. Using bubbles to power the transport of antibiotics. The movement itself improves the retention of antibiotics on the stomach lining where the bacteria are concentrated, says Joseph Wang of the University of California, San Diego, who led the research with Liang Fang Zhang. In mice with bacterial stomach infections, the team used the micromotors to administer a dose of antibiotics daily for five days. At the end of the treatment, they found their approach was more effective than regular doses of antibiotic. The tiny vehicles consist of a spherical magnesium core coated with several different layers that offer protection, treatment, and the ability to stick to the walls of the stomach. After they're swallowed, the magnesium cores react with the stomach acid to produce a stream of hydrogen bubbles that propel the motor around. This process briefly reduces acidity in the stomach. The antibiotic layer of the micromotor is sensitive to the surrounding acidity, and when it is lowered, the antibiotics are released. This is fucking genius. Sure. (laughs) Now, let's just stop down and explain a little bit of background here. Um, It was discovered in the 90s that, and actually this won the Nobel Prize in medicine, it was discovered that the bacteria Helicobacter pylori, or H. pylori, causes ulcers. It used to be thought that ulcers were caused by stress. Right. And it is possible to get an ulcer because of stress without a bacterial infection, but very often it is a bacterial infection that can be cured with antibiotics. Hmm. And the way that this was proven was the person who discovered it, actually, nobody believed him. Everybody, there was such entrenched dogma around this idea that ulcers are caused by stress and it's not a bacterial infection that nobody believed the scientist who discovered that, yes, this bacteria can cause ulcers. So what did he do? He brewed up a bunch of the bacteria and he drank it himself. And he got an ulcer. And then he took antibiotics and the ulcer disappeared. Wow. So patient zero. That's dedication for you. (laughs) (laughs) So then they finally believed him. (laughs) That is that is amazing. I mean, first off, like just that kind of that level of dedication 
to science and the truth is oh i mean like like you got you have to respect that that that's so phenomenal absolutely uh, i just what a um, story. i just uh let's see i just googled um it was barry marshall okay and it was 2005 nobel prize in physiology or medicine well, you better give him a fucking prize the guy put his life on the line <laughs> for crying out loud <laughs> yep so anyway um the problem with the problem with treating ulcers that are caused by h pylori is that it's hard to find antibiotics that stay in this concentrated in the stomach to actually treat the infection. The stomach is a weird environment in the body because it's a very acidic pH. Yeah. And, you know, not only do you, and the the lining of the stomach sheds very quickly, you know, once every couple of days. So, not only do you need something that works at at an acid pH, but something that's going to stick around in the stomach when the stomach is constantly emptying its con- contents out. Mm-hmm. So, it's hard to uh find a solution to that. But what these researchers did was they basically invented this little magnesium core that's coated with layers of um, like coatings that release antibiotic at the acidic pH. And then (laughs) they are powered when the magnesium reacts with the stomach acid and creates hydrogen bubbles that propel it into the area that needs the treatment. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. This might be the next Nobel prize. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it really could. Now, I mean, the idea, so really the idea of using nanobots, so that was originally theorized by Richard Feynman, right? Uh, you I know, think so. Yeah. Like he he called it he called them micro machines, but obviously we wouldn't want to call them micro machines. Micro machines yeah, from the loop. <laughs> that was like my four year old girl voiceover inspiration was that micro machines. Man, oh, that guy was amazing. Him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, continue. Yeah. So, um, and I think he said one of his students back in the fifties was who came up with the idea. Hey, can we? You know. Like we could use this for medical purposes, these micro machines or the, you know, now what we call nanobots or nanorobots. Uh, so, I mean, this is this is a very old idea finally really coming to fruition. I mean, I know this has been talked about a lot, but now you're hearing a very practical use case. Um, I mean, I, I, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, there, there's concerns. I mean, people do have concerns about like if you start injecting everybody with nanobots, what are these nanobots going to do? You know, right. I mean, like, and it's pretty hard to get them out if you, you right. know, put them in and they're causing trouble. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, what's his name? Uh, Ray Kurzweil. He talks about them often saying that eventually you're just going to have, you know, millions of nanobots inside of your body constantly uh, repairing your cells or replacing your cells or whatever, you know, to, to but, where you can live But the live thing forever. is, you already have that. It's called like your own biological machinery. <laughs> sure. What, Every cell like has meiosis, little motors I mean, in it. Yeah. Yeah. Not just meiosis, um, you know, cell division, mitosis. Meiosis is a different right. thing. Right. Sorry. Mitosis. Yes, mitosis. Not just cell division. and But, like, your body has machines that repair DNA that are encoded in your own genome. They're uh-huh. proteins. There's proteins that walk along other proteins, like a literal, like, a feet walking on a track, you know? Well, I'm, yeah. And I imagine Kurzweil's claim would be, well, these won't ever get tired of doing that, or they won't ever slow down or stop. They'll just keep going. Uh, in going through that process, I mean, I, I yeah, don't... I mean, you could introduce new ones that are not normally present in your body, but um, I mean, we have pretty amazing machinery as it is. It's just that you know sometimes you need help, like in a special case where, like for example, a mouse or a human has an infection in the stomach. It's hard to get drugs to concentrate there. Mm-hmm. You could use one of these machines that is 
self-limited. It's not going to exist forever. It runs out of gas after a certain amount of time. Right. And it's biodegradable. There's right. nothing harmful in it. And it just goes away once the job is done. I mean, I think that's a great use for a nano robot. Yeah, in a medical I, context. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, at, at the end of the day, you know, despite Kurzweil's, you know, flights of fancy, I mean, I do see this very much the future. I mean, I really see a future where doctors aren't so much around anymore, where all of this stuff gets done through wireless communication by yourself. You would inject your own nanobots and say, hey, could you repair this, please? Like on your smartphone or something, <laughs> you know? I mean, I could really see that happening. Oh, I don't know. That reminds me of that birth control chip that you can turn on and off. Well, this you would see the direct effect, yeah. but yeah, I, I get your point. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. as long as it's not a top-down authoritarian solution, Bingo. I think that's to make the difference. All right, more coming up. Smart dumb. Oh, listeners, we have a very interesting pitch for you. You are going to love this. Brian, take it away. Yeah, I'll tell you. Uh, so what we have in mind here is Stephanie and I are actually writing our own erotic anthology called. Oh, yes. Yeah. Called Paleo Erotica. Now, this is going to be coming out fast. But here's the thing. You get to be a part of it, too. If you get to us a, a short piece of short fiction, short story, anywhere from a thousand words to 17,000 words, no guarantee that you're going to get in. OK, but just email it to me, BBS at SomerTech.com or show at SexAndScienceR.com. That's fine. Email it. We'll look it over, um, but we want you to be a part of this. Uh, there's no monetary compensation, you know, compensation whatsoever. But you will get to um, you know, promote your pet project or whatever in the About the Author section. And yeah. you'll get to be a part of Paleoerotica. Who doesn't want that? So a little more about what we mean by Paleoerotica. These are stories that take place in the Paleolithic era. Yeah. These are historical, or actually prehistorical, porn. Yeah. <laughs> so if you have a story that fits those criteria... Again, 1,000 to 17,000 words. Send it in by November 30th. Email us for more details. Show at sexandsciencehour.com. And now, back to the show. This is Sex and Science Hour. Guess what time it is, Brian? It's time for Smart Dumb. Oh. We're bringing back Smart Dumb. We've had some requests to bring back Smart Dumb. This is a segment where... We talk about something that's billed as like a smart product mm -hmm. that's just dumb. It's exactly <laughs> what it sounds like. Smart dumb. <laughs> okay. So like, for example, smart toys. I've got an article here that was sent in by a listener from the School Library Journal of all places. This is like a teacher's website. With smart toys, kids' privacy is at play by Marva Hinton. Are internet connected toys available to students at your school? The FBI recently issued a public service announcement about them, warning that common features such as microphones and cameras, quote, could put the privacy and safety of children at risk due to the large amount of personal information that, we, that may be unwittingly disclosed. Brian, you what? look like you want to say something. <laughs> so what, are the, what is the product again? Uh, just, just toys with like cameras and microphones in them. And there's a lot of them now. There's too many to even list. And the FBI said nothing, did nothing about the one laptop per child horseshit. Oh, it's completely hypocritical. Uh, yeah, I, I, totally. I <laughs> like, there was no warnings with those. I mean, and that had the camera. I mean, like. Yeah, they're spying. Meanwhile, the NSA is spying on everybody through their adult toys, their smartphones, and their internet connected dildos. Yeah, hell. I mean, you had that story uh, probably like seven years ago now where, yes. 
uh, uh, I think it was in Pennsylvania, a school district. And I mean, lots of school districts have done this and they still, and they do it even more so now where they give you a laptop and the superintendent was fucking turning on the, the webcams remotely. Yeah, yeah. On these little netbooks at the time, which were hot, you know, that, that, that the kids had. And it's like, well, you know, what the fuck, mm-hmm. uh, hot, I, like popular, not as in stolen, sexy or warm. No, right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They were just, yeah, they were popular. Yeah. So uh, th- this doesn't even make any sense. Like, oh, the FBI is warning about that. Yeah. Um, should I read on here? Please. Gary Price, a librarian and the founder and editor of Library Journal's Info Docket, a clearinghouse for information about the industry, agrees. Everything, quote, everything that we do online and now increasingly with the Internet of Things can be intercepted, Price says. It is probably being stored. Oh, how right you are, Mr. Price. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Internet connected toys often interact with a child by asking and answering questions. The conversations are usually recorded to allow the toy to, quote, get to know a child in order to provide more appropriate responses. But too often, parents don't know where that information is being stored or what privacy protections the toy manufacturer has in place. And the answer is none. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Lynette Atai is the president and founder of Playwell LLC, a consulting firm that helps companies navigate digital and mobile privacy issues for kids. She's reluctant to say that these toys pose a threat, but she stresses that parents have to be vigilant about the technology, just as they would be with anything their child uses. One of the things we need to remember is that good parenting hasn't changed. Technology has changed, says Atai, who advises parents to do a lot of research before giving their child an Internet-connected toy. See, see if there have been any recalls, any controversy, any issues that might pop up that could be concerning. Read the instructions very carefully. These products come with privacy policies. You need to read them and review them. If you don't understand them, if they're written in legal jargon that's complicated and unclear, that should perhaps be a signal not to purchase that product. Well, that's nice in theory, but every privacy policy is written in legal jargon that you can't understand. So just don't give your kids a toy? Yeah, I guess that's the answer. Well, I mean, let's talk about a couple things. Like, one of the real problems here is the reason that that the FBI is warning about this is, it's one word, China. Okay, because most of these toys come from China. And so they're concerned that just like they put out for smartphones, like they it was a couple of years ago that Joe Biden, uh, you know, said it's like, don't buy ZTE or I think Highway where the two companies said don't buy. Oh, yeah. And there was something about the external hard drives or something that came from China that had maybe like spyware on them or something. That that was I mean, those are two Chinese companies. I mean, that, that was the concern is that like the Chinese government effectively would have access to whatever you happen to say or whatever. They, they still want to collect, you know, the U.S. government wants to collect all this information about you. But the concern they just don't is, want is the that... Chinese to have it. And really, like, what is the Chinese government going to do with information about Americans and their kids? I mean, it's, right. it's creepy, but what are they going to do? Like the U.S. government has so much more power to actually do something negative. Like if the child says, bear, why does, hey, teddy bear, what does it mean when my mommy says she's going to go blaze with her friends outside? <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> Or, you know, what is uh, Budweiser? You know, like, right. The, you know, the the American government is or one of its various wings is way more likely to crack down on children who admit that their parents use drugs or evade taxes or whatever. Right. Well, now, the other problem or the, yeah, exactly. And the other thing to bring up, too, is that, look, you need to you know, I, I, I don't normally tell people to go apologize to their crazy uncle. 
but I want you to go apologize to your crazy uncle. Cause when he, when he told you back in the nineties or in the aughts or in the eighties or whenever, I don't know how old you are. Okay. When he told you, no, no, the government's listening through that little fucking device of yours, whatever it was at the time, you said he was nuts that they'd never do that. And they'd had no reason to do that. Blah, 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 blah. Now guess what? Crazy uncle's right now. And the FBI is proving the point that all of these things, I mean, this is so hilarious because people are like, oh, they're not spying. I mean, now most people have to just just have to resign themselves and just say, well, but I have nothing to hide. That's what people have to say. now. Yeah, it's so common to have that attitude. Yeah. Yeah. The arc, because I mean, here it is. The FBI is telling you, no, guess what? Even your toys could potentially be hearing very sensitive information and you should be careful. OK, so that argument that oh, that's conspiracy theory that they're listening to you. There's conspiracy theory that they're tracking you, blah, blah, blah. I mean, now it's, it's not con- anymore. It's not conspiracy if you're if you're right. Right. And, the, and well, yeah, you're not paranoid if you know if you're right. Yeah, yeah. you're not, you're only paranoid if you're wrong. <laughs> if you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so but that but that's kind of the sad part is that people used to just write it off as conspiracy so they didn't have to worry about it. Now they know it's not. Now they know it's a fact and they don't fucking care. They just yeah, don't care. There's definitely been a shift in the attitudes about privacy, I would say. Like by now there's kids being born that will never know what real privacy is like to not live in an internet connected world. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with you, though I do think that privacy is a biological universal, just like empathy and others. Um, really? Some people say it's a social construct. No. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, uh, you know, not, not, well, I'll self-promote. Listen to episode 239 of Sovereign Tech that I recorded last week. I covered this whole thing uh, and how it's just crazy, you know, to, to, to make that claim. Um, but it's a biological universal. And I think teenagers are feeling it. In fact, you and I, Stephanie, we were reading a story that I might cover on my own show about like what what social media platforms teenagers are using. Oh, yeah. They, it was called like what teenagers really think about social media written by an actual teenager. Right. They don't want to be on Facebook unless it's in groups. Yeah, they, they said it's like the thing that your old, weird uncle and family have that have figured that that have caught on to it. And you can't not have a Facebook because it's seen as very so it's it's worse to not have a Facebook mm-hmm. than it is to uh, to have one and not actively post on it. So everybody has one, but they don't use it. Right. But then they talked about, so they said, yeah, we don't want to share stuff on there because we don't want grandma reading it. We don't want anything else, you know, all this other stuff going on. And then they said the most popular one is Instagram. And a lot of people, a lot of young people are completely eschewing uh, getting a Facebook account and they're just going straight to Instagram. Now there's varying reasons for why that is, but the one claimed by the teenager was that, well, it's because you don't get inundated with a bunch of crap and you don't feel compelled to just share every little goddamn thing. Mm -hmm. You, you just, you share the perfect shot. You share the moment, you know, that, that you might want out there with the world, but all the other little stuff, it's just not there. It's too much. So I think teenagers are wisening up. I think, I think they're very smart and I think that they're recognizing, no, actually I want privacy. I don't want people to know what the hell I'm doing. And part of that also, I think is because teenagers today are growing up, uh, getting you know you mentioned social constructs getting rid of the real social constructs that are out there and they know just how anathema that is seen by the bulk of society and they have to hide it mm. you know and i mean they they might want to be proud about it they might want to do their own little mini pride parades and all that and i support that 100% okay but a lot of times i think they they feel like they have to keep it in dark corners they are really i think teenagers today are setting up for a very different lifestyle than anything the world's ever oh, seen. Oh yeah, before. it's going to be really interesting what the world looks like in thirty years from yeah. now. That's for sure. And they know they need privacy to foster it. 
you know, and, and, and that's, that was actually one of my points that I made about privacy recently was that you have to, to foster genuinely new ideas in new ways. You have to have privacy. You've got to have a no judgment zone where the world isn't telling you you're wrong, you know, or coming down on you so quickly uh, to get that out there. So, so I, I get your point that they're growing, they are, you're right. They're growing up in a world where there isn't real privacy because of everything being interconnected, but at the same time, they still want it and they're trying for it, hmm. whether they, whether they're doing it the so right way like or not, it's another conversation. Like in Big Brother, they have the, or in 1984, they yeah. have the, you know, secret club of the rebels. And you know. yeah, I mean, not that Instagram's any better as far as privacy goes than anything else, but the, the abstract notion I think is there in their head. So, you know. All right. Well, speaking of an abstract notion in somebody's head. Whoa. <laughs> that was a terrible segue. <laughs> but we, I don't, we, we can go anywhere with that. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it was a great segue. I don't know. You be the judge. Um, <laughs> this is all very postmodern here. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, that word. We have promised the people sex in segment three, and we will deliver. I have an article here. That We're was- already in segment three? Yeah. Well, where the Can hell have I been? It? All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, we had to do smart dumb, but we also have to uh, have to pay the tease when it comes to talking about sex. Let's do it. I've got an article here that was sent in by Cognitive Dissident. Oh. And one uh, day we'll find out who this is. Yeah, it's still perplexing the heck out of me. Yeah. Um, I have an idea, but I feel like I've asked that person and they denied it. Yeah. <laughs> so. Maybe That's I'm exactly wrong. exactly what cognitive dissident would do. Exactly. That is exactly what they would do. That sneaky little cognitive dissident. Anyway, <laughs> cognitive dissident sent us a very interesting article called 10 Things You Didn't Know About Your Penis and Balls. Bust out these facts at your next dinner party. Now, there's nothing sexy about this. <laughs> That's what I thought when I first, I was like, oh, come on, who wants to hear about dicks? They're they're just passe. They, well, I'm over it. <laughs> Like, I'm so not interested in interesting penis facts. Oh, let's pay more attention to the penis than it already let's gets. Let's talk about dick like it's not talked about enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> dick is abundant and low value. <laughs> but I actually read this and it turned out to be that it actually was quite interesting. So here we go. T- 10 interesting penis facts from, All right. the, from men's health. You might think you're an expert on your own package. After all, keeping it happy and healthy is a central goal for most men. But despite how frequently you think about your penis and balls, they contain a few magical secrets that you still haven't yet uncovered. Number one, you can deadlift with your dong. Oh, no, I know this. This is interesting. See? I I, I know about this. Don't do this, but okay. (laughs) The practice of an iron crotch is a legitimate, albeit niche, form of kung fu. In martial arts, in his martial arts studio in Los Angeles, Grandmaster Tu Jin Sheng teaches students how to lift more weight with straps wrapped around their flaccid penises than you can bench press. You sure that wasn't Master Lo Wang? (laughs) No? No, No, it was not. Okay. I was looking for the pun in his name, but I don't see it. Um, In the early 2000s, he gained media attention for towing a tractor trailer with his junk. (laughs) And a couple years later, followed up that stunt by pulling an 8,000-pound World War II era fighter plane down the runway for National Geographic. All right. So there's people who talk. I'm sorry. Jin Sheng claims that in addition to improving the virility and the length of your penis, strapping heavy weights to your groin also relieves a variety of ailments from diabetes to heart disease. (laughs) 
And it's safe to say that those claims haven't been confirmed. <laughs> wow. So this is so there's a few different uh, modes that people talk about for uh, enlarging your penis. One of them is to put weights on it. Now, this is I've heard about this. I've also heard of weights for foreskin stretching. Yeah. Yeah. Now, either method, either way, like that's a very risky proposition, in my opinion. I mean, this guy obviously went through a whole lot of um, practice, shall we say. Uh, and yeah, he's a master. Yeah. I mean, the other popular way is to do jelking, which does work. But th- like this, what? What was the Jel- eye roll? Jelking. I just said it worked. No, it it works a little too well. That's all I'm going to say. All right. Well, <laughs> well, anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so just be careful if people are going to go do this. Yes, I, definitely don't try this at home. Even if you have a Kung Fu master, you don't want to be pulling an airplane down the highway with your dick. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. thinking that it's going to cure your diabetes. <laughs> if only you can make it take off. All right. Number two, your erection can be graded. And there's a picture of a girl holding an A-plus sign. Tumescence, you know, the stiffness of your soldier, can be measured on a four-step scale. Bigger, but yet not rigid. Hard enough for penetration. Firm for intercourse, but not rock hard. And fully engorged. The erection hardness scale was developed by scientists who were testing the drug Viagra during the 1990s. <laughs> the prime, the primary method used at that time, the International Index of Erectile Function, asked men to rate their boner based on their self-confidence and how often they could have sex. But while the original study showing that Viagra works was going to press, the editors of the New England Journal of Medicine suggested a simpler way of quantifying erection outcome data, says author study, study author Erwin Goldstein, M.D. Uh-huh, Mr. Goldstein. Um, it doesn't say what the, uh, the simpler way of quantifying erection outcome... Oh, I guess the, the great, the four... The four-letter grades is, is the, the simpler simple. way. Okay. Yeah. All right. I mean, yeah, this is true. Like, meaning there's four, there's like, I could imagine four levels where you could still come, even though it's not like, you know, rock hard. You know? Well, apparently erection and orgasm are separate for, for male physiology. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're controlled by two different branches in the nervous system. Erection is the parasympathetic nervous system and um, orgasm is the sympathetic. Okay. And the way that you're taught to remember that in medical school is point and shoot. <laughs> Aha, point and S, right. Yeah. Point Got is the it. erection, shoot is the, yeah. Got it. Anyway, so um, men are just as sensitive as women is number three. We're talking about sensitivity to touch, of course. When it comes to sensation on your genitals, men and women are almost identical. Separate studies at Cornell University for Women and Michigan State University for Men used a scientific device that measures the lightest amount of pressure a person can feel on their skin. For guys, the most sensitive areas were the tip of the foreskin and the area on the underside of the penis just below the glands called the frenulum. For ladies, the most receptive regions were the inner labia. But according to the sensitivity scale, men and women were in a dead heat— both genders re- responded to the same level of touch. Two-tenths of a gram of pressure could be felt. So they're basically saying that it's a myth that they say women are more sensitive than men. Oh, sure. To yeah, touch. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, four, bacteria on your junk can lead to AIDS. You're probably aware that your colon is full of different bacteria, most of which are helpful. 
The tip of your penis also harbors its own colony of bacteria, but those tiny critters may affect your risk of HIV infection. Researchers at Johns Hopkins University have shown that uncircumcised men harbor harmful bacteria underneath their foreskin that thrives in the oxygen-starved environment. The anaerobic bacteria or other organisms there cause inflammation, which attracts the immune system's T-cells that HIV targets and makes them more susceptible to infection, says author, study author Ronald Gray, MD, a professor of epidemiology at Johns Hopkins. Of course, if you're uncircumcised and want to avoid STDs, you should simply wear a condom and follow these guidelines on how to keep your private parts healthy. That, I'm sorry, but I just think that's complete bullshit because people use that to justify circumcision. Oh, yeah, it reduces your risk of STDs. Well, no, everybody still needs to wear a condom, right? And if you circumcise a kid without their consent, well, you just did a non-consensual surgery on them that they may regret later in their life. Yeah. They may want that most sensitive part of their body back. I don't know. Just guessing, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think it's bullshit. Uh, that's as far as using that as a justification. And then it's also like sort of pl- buying into the myth that, oh, like foreskins are dirty. No, they're not necessarily. And there's a reason no. your body has that. It's it evolved for a reason. So anyway, don't mess with it. That's my opinion. Damn right. Five, morning wood can hurt. Now, Brian, does as as person with penis, does this ever affect you? Does it hurt? Does it hurt? I don't know that I ever wake up with it like like painful, you know. Okay, I mean, it, it it can hurt if you're if like I'm laying on my stomach and I wake up and it's like ah oh, shit. Uh, yeah, but then you're doing a push up and yeah, not with your arms. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, cock push up. And uh, <laughs> but you know, I don't know that it, that it hurts. I, I, All right, whether you're dreaming of a sexy encounter or not, you probably wake up ready for action on most mornings. Yes. In fact, men typically experience between three and five full erections every night, typically during the deep rapid eye movement phase of sleep. So imagine how miserable it would be to become afflicted with sleep-related painful erections. It's a rare condition, a little more than 30 cases have been reported so far, in which the erections you achieve in dreamland, but not necessarily the ones you get while awake, are painful instead of pleasurable, and they hurt enough to wake you up. Well, now, so as I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Murphy, as I understand it, like it, it's within the past 10 years that they finally figured out like why Morningwood's even a thing. Um, why is it a thing? Because it actually prevents you from peeing. Really? Oh, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. That, I, I had heard that it's just sort of part of your body's REM sleep and it happens when you go into a deep REM sleep. Yeah. My understanding, I mean, I guess I, I should look it up, but uh, is that they found out it's because you, it, it actually prevents you, you know, pretty much from like wetting the bed and all this other stuff. I mean, <laughs> it's weird. You know, well, it's true. I mean, you know, here's a true fact about your penis. Like if, if you have to, you know, if you really have to pee or something, it's hard to pee with boner, I've, yeah, I've I mean, heard. Right. So, you know, give yourself a Studenhofer and then you don't have to, you know, you don't have to, maybe, maybe that can keep you from having to pee. Oh, God, it's making me think of a personal story. Oh, yeah. all right. <laughs> I know, know the, the story. story. Yeah. We won't speak of it. All right. We will not. Anyway, number six, your penis tricks women into thinking it's a monster. What? <laughs> I told you this was interesting. Chalk it up to wishful thinking or memory's way of making things seem better than reality. But a recent study has found that women remember penises as being larger than they really were. 
Researchers at the University of California had 41 gals handle a 3D-printed dildo for 30 seconds. Then, the study participants completed a short survey, after which they had to reach into a bin of 32 other fake penises and pick the one they held before. As it turns out, the women generally pulled out a phony phallus that was bigger than the original one. Score! (laughs) (laughs) Is this going to... All right. So, I mean, there's so many variables and factors involved in that. Hand size, lots of different things that I could picture where a person could be very confused as to which one was what. But, I mean, come on. How much social, social conditioning is there on women to, oh, you want the big penis, right? Well, I don't know how much social conditioning there is. Uh, I guess it's considered bigger is better. I but mean, that's just I, it's not really true, though. No, it's not. But I mean, but absolutely, that's what was spread around high school when I was growing up. You know, I mean, to everybody, it's like, oh, yeah, the big dick. I mean, you know, all this stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, you know, when you have that kind of social conditioning, I could see where, oh, yeah, no, I had that one. You know, I mean, and, and not not that the, again, like you said, that bigger does not mean better. Uh, and what what are you laughing about? Go ahead, tell me, tell me, tell me all about it. I'm just like I'm just thinking of this. Like, I don't know. I I'm an exceptionally rational person, and I have a great I have a great ability to estimate volumes and sizes of things. Uh-huh. And I think my memory is pretty accurate. And I can remember the ones that were big and the ones that were small. And, uh-huh. and I, you know, it's okay. <laughs> I really care more about the person they're attached to oh, than the size of them. But guys are obsessed with size a lot of times. Sure. But yeah, I mean, a big one, sometimes it can be a disadvantage because then, you know, it's just too big to do yeah. certain things with. Yeah. You can always work around it. There's ways to, there's ways to be creative bumpers. about it. But <laughs> not just bumpers. <laughs> All right, number seven, you can pierce your prick as many times as you would like. God. The opening of your urethra at the tip of your penis has a name, the meatus. And if it doesn't seem to be an adequate number of holes in your family jewels, you could take after Rolf Buchholz, a German man who holds the official record for the most body piercings. According to the official count by the Guinness Book of World Records, out of Buckholtz's 453 piercings, 278 are on his genitals. Holy hell. I don't really know what to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I... Why, where did he fit them all? I don't know, and I just... No appeal. How does he pee? <sighs> Inquiring minds want to know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, actually. (laughs) All right. Well, speaking of things you don't want to know about, number eight, some guys like getting kicked in the balls. Oh, my. A swift kick to the crotch is probably at the bottom list of the things you want to have happen to you during sex. But for some guys, ball busting is a sadomasochistic sexual fetish. (laughs) Part of the menu of services you might hire a dominatrix to perform. Man, let me just say... I know somebody who, if she could get paid to kick (laughs) guys in the balls all day, that would literally be her dream job. (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. Now she just has to find the clients. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) close to 10,000 members, including men and women of the kinky social network FetLife, listed as a personal interest. And there are 33,000 results for ball busting on YouTube. Search at your own risk. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Number nine, a twisted testicle can leave you with one nut. 
Oh, oh testicular oh. torsion. That's bad. Ugh. First, the good news. Your balls can't get tangled up with each other like your iPod earbuds since your scrotum contains two separate compartments divided by a thin membrane. What can happen, however, is an individual testicle can spin around, which twists the spermatic cord until it cuts off ah. blood flow. Everybody's listening. It's going, ah! It's incredibly painful, and testicular torsion can cost you the nut if it's not treated quickly enough. While it's most likely to occur when your gonads are developing, either as an infant or a teenager, a British study reported that cyclists are at increased risk of testicular torsion due to the rocking motion they make while seated on the bike saddle. (laughs) Runner's nuts. All right. Bikers. Yeah, bikers in that case. All right. And 10, erections cause you to make bad decisions. But we all knew that, didn't we? (laughs) Back in 2005, scientists at MIT and Carnegie Mellon University had 35 men answer a survey both in a normal state and while masturbating to what the researchers called a high but suborgasmic level of arousal. Okay. When the men were turned on, they rated just about everything the scientists asked as more sexually attractive, including women's shoes, the idea of a MMF threesome, and even the smell of cigarette smoke. I think we talked about this study on the show last season. Maybe. That men, whatever, when they were turned on, even like disgusting things or the things that would normally disgust them if they weren't turned on, turned on, they rated them as more sexy. Yeah, I can imagine it because they'd just be like, I just have to get off and, you know, whatever would help increase that. Yeah. Hmm. At the same time, during masturbation, the guys said they were willing to work harder to get laid, whether it was as simple as telling their date, I love you, to get her to sleep with them, or the immoral act of intentionally getting her more drunk. Oh, fuck. That's bad. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So they become more rapey, essentially. That doesn't necessarily mean all guys think with their penis, but being horny has more sway over your decisions than you probably realized. That's the end of the article. Wow. <laughs> well, so 10 interesting penis facts. Uh, yeah, pretty interesting. Yep. I think so. All right. Well, we got more coming up. We got some listener emails to get to. So uh, stick around. There's more coming up. All right, here we are. We're back. Segment four, listener emails. We got a message about the trans dating topic that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Okay. About, like, you know, these social media articles that were going around about, are you obligated to tell somebody that you're transgender before dating them? And when do you tell them? And blah, blah, blah. And we talked about it on the show. Yeah. But we got an email from Albert Nobbs, who is an actual trans person. And uh, they wanted to weigh in, so... Okay. Let's read uh, their email. Um, you can read some of this on your show if you'd like or post it in your Facebook group. I'm a non-booker. Ooh, very rare. right on. Or just consider it for future responses. But I felt like I had to get a rant out. In response to the segment on when a trans person should come out from a trans person, I think there is a misunderstanding by the general public about what a trans person means when they say, I don't need to tell you before we date. First, as it becomes socially acceptable to be trans, less dangerous to be trans, more and more trans people are putting it on their dating profiles, if only to filter out people who are going to have a hard time with it. However, those that are stealth, that aren't out in their lives as trans, will eventually tell the person they're dating, just not before they're dating. 
excluding a few exceptional cases, it won't be years into the relationship. It'll probably be within a few coffee dates. Yes, people have preferences about dating a trans person or not. They also have preferences for people who have certain interests, employment, income, personalities, life goals. All of these could be deal breakers. Those first couple dates are when you get to know a person. It's harrowing to come out to a stranger and potentially dangerous to come out to every first coffee date if you're stealth in a hostile community, if your employer or housing hinges on you staying stealth. What people don't realize they're asking is for a trans person to paint a target on their backs so that other people don't have a moment of awkwardness or discomfort down the road. Meet us halfway. We will tell you, but when we know it is safe. To say no means no and it's rapey to expect somebody to go against their preferences betrays a fundamental misunderstanding about how and when trans people do tell people they're dating. It's not right before sex, naked and vulnerable, alone with the other person without witnesses. If it isn't already on their profile, it's usually after a few coffee dates in when, in, in when a trans person feels safe and thinks there is actual potential with the person. If there is no otherwise... Sorry, if there is otherwise no potential relationship between the parties, what's the point of staying to reveal risky medical history? It's a big ask to tell trans people to advertise such sensitive information to every cute new stranger they want to have coffee with. Real quick, in terms of the, quote, complete transition, it's a little messier than that. Not everyone is so binary or can access, quote, all the surgeries due to other health issues or financial barriers. And yeah, I agree. So, I I mean, I th- appreciate that perspective. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I do think most people have a misunderstanding of when you reveal, <laughs> you know, when a trans person might reveal that they're trans to a person that they're dating. And yeah. Yeah. And it's not it's not all what the person is saying is like it's not like a binary thing. Either you tell them before you ever go on a first date with them or you tell them like during sex like oh by the way <laughs> i'm trans you know yeah, right, right or you tell them like when you're walking down the aisle oh yeah by the way i was born a woman or a man or whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know you could there's an in-between there's like you know after a few coffee dates when you feel safe with the person then you reveal that information yeah absolutely i mean it's no in my my personal opinion it is no different than you know i mean you don't talk about like your family life or something after a little while you know oh, especially yeah. if it's something traumatic why would you wh- why why would you be required to bring that kind of shit up oh my gosh it's ridiculous i think everybody has something that they wouldn't want to tell a person before they they wouldn't want to tell a person on date zero, you know, mm-hmm. before you ever go on your first date. They wouldn't want to just admit to the whole world, but they would tell a person that they were interested in, that they saw potential with after two or three dates. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, this just doesn't fly. I, I mean, the idea that, oh, you know, you have to know or, you, you know, it's your right to know or something like this. It's not your right to know anything about anybody like that. I mean, that that's, yeah, it, well, we've covered this subject, you know, pretty, pretty heavily. Yeah. So but. I appreciate the perspective of an actual trans person because we're not. We're cisgender. Yeah. So, you know, we don't we have never had to deal with this. So and I've never dated a trans person. Have you? No. Yeah. So, I mean, not very much experience here. Yeah. Do people that don't really know much about what they're talking about, but have an opinion anyway. But it's nice to have someone weigh in who's actually a little bit closer to that issue. So Absolutely. thanks for the email. All right, we got another <laughs> comment from our Facebook group, which you should join at Sex and Science Hour podcast community on Facebook. Just search for it. 
join up. You're going to have to answer a question about who we are, but that's okay, because if you really listen to the show, you can answer that question. You should make like a URL. It's like facebook.sexandsciencehour.com. Oh, I should. I haven't made that yet, so don't go there, but I will. That's a good idea. Cool. Remind me to do that right now. I'll remind you. All right. You guys don't favor morning sex? Last week on that other group's relationship post, I think he's talking about your group, right? <laughs> a lot I, of synergy. <laughs> I said my wife and I were around twice a week. I meant making love. Morning wood, quickies, and nooners don't count in my book. Do most consider a quick release to be sex? Is that skewing statistics? Does the 20-year married couple count a five-minute pump and dump as sex? Oh, how the mind wanders. <laughs> now, first of all, I've never heard a quickie referred to as a pump and dump. I've only heard like altcoin scams be referred to as an investment term. Yeah, Yeah. it's a stock, penny stock, or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's different. Um, Well, I mean, first off, to address, and I'm I'm sure actually this person you know knows this, but uh, sex is a whole lot more than PIV. Sex can be all kinds of wild things. You know, sex could be a dry hump in the cubicle. I mean, sex could be. I mean, there's lots of lots of different things that can be sex. So. Sure. To answer the question, is this considered sex? Yeah. What the hell? I mean, if you think it's sex, oh, it's yeah, sex. Oh, yeah. It all counts as sex. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there is a common perception that it has to fit within this narrow definition to be counted as sex. Usually right. that's heterosexual penis and vagina intercourse with an orgasm for the man, at least. <laughs> yeah. And it has to last, I don't know, maybe a certain amount of time. Right. It has to be in bed at night. I mean, it's getting pretty specific here, but really anything that that feels sexual and good to you is sex. There's so many other sex acts you can do besides just that good old heterosexual PIV intercourse in bed at night. You You could get freaky in the shower. You could touch each other. You could not even have to have an orgasm. I mean, it doesn't have to have an orgasm for it to feel good and for it to be satisfying. You know, some people don't or don't easily or it takes them a long time or whatever. So not every encounter has to include that, although it can and it's great if it does. Um, Yeah. Masturbation is sex. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think so as far as the morning sex part goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you and I, you know, as long as you don't mind me revealing this, I mean, you know, morning sex isn't exactly part of the part of the program. Oh, yeah. We've talked about this before because I mean. First thing in the morning, mm-hmm. like when we first wake up, we're yeah. like groggy. We're just like stumbling around like zombies. And by the way, you usually wake up earlier than me. Yeah. So it's like we're not even getting out of bed at the same time. But when I, we, you stumble out of bed, you go down and have some caffeine. Yeah. Then you come get me later and wake me up. And then I stumble out of bed. So <laughs> it's not exactly coordinated exactly right for us to do that in the morning but right you know any other time of day is pretty much fine <laughs> yeah i mean daytime you know i'll be the first and i've said it before i'll, I'll be the first to say it daytime sex my opinion's the best mm-hmm. um i but, need at least an hour within waking up yeah so, that's so. the thing right now so so i guess the better question is like what define morning <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. if you mean when we first wake up yeah maybe it's not necessarily going you know going to happen then i mean maybe it will i don't know but uh yeah, usually if it's an hour or two if that later, if that from waking up, if that's still considered morning, okay, then yeah, morning sex happens, you know, and and that you know might even happen often. But <laughs> the one thing that we've never done is called it a pump and dump. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I don't. You know, 
thinking about it, like, do we ever really do quickies of any kind? I mean, that's not even not no, not usually. Um, not 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 that it can't be quick, but I, I just we we haven't done. That you're yet. not a big fan of them, I don't think. No, yeah, I, I like to go the distance. I mean, I like I like to, I like to take the time, you know, and yeah, and look and and understand this. Here's the other thing too, like quickies. I don't. There's nothing wrong with quickies. I I think they're they're fine and dandy, and they can happen. Um, I really I actually don't really have a problem with them. But uh, there's nothing wrong if like a person can't get into a quickie either. You know, I mean, some some women, you know, it takes them. Yeah, it, it, takes, it could take them up to thirty minutes the oven before you shove the turkey in. Right, right, and the preheat cycle could go, you know, thirty minutes. I mean, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, you know. And that's, every, I mean, everybody's different. Just like for some guys, and it's not. It, it may have nothing to do with any kind of, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, dysfunction. I, I hate that. That sounds way too judgmental, but. Uh, they just might like to take the time, you know, take it slow or, yeah. or, or go, go for a while and like really experience as much as they can of the other person. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many reasons behind that. So, so, I mean, even the quickie, like if you've never had a quickie, there's nothing wrong with that. Sure. That could just be biology or preference. I think a lot of times with quickies, the idea is that you're turned on before that point. You know what I mean? Like you're sexting each other or you're oh, yeah. like, you know, reading erotica or something and then you see each other and then it's like, boom, it happens really fast. Yeah. But, but it two people aren't always exactly on the same page about that either. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One person could be ready to go. The other one needs a little more time. So, all right. Speaking of needing a little more time. We actually have one more email here. Um, this is from the dictionary buyer, the person who brought the, brought the dictionary on all um, those dictionaries. Yeah, on uh, stuff.sexandsciencehour.com that we heard from before. So they say, "Hi, Brian wanted to know whether or not the Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy, third edition by Simon Blackburn, very thorough, had entries on Rothbard, Hoppe, or Rand. There are no entries on Rothbard or Hoppe, but there <laughs> Which, is." <laughs> Which I said. Yeah. I said, you, you will not find those guys in there. I guarantee you that. <laughs> like, I mean, and you just, yeah. Uh, well, They didn't go, go make ahead. the cut, Brian. <laughs> no, because they're not philosophers. <laughs> they're not. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I agree. They're not really philosophers. They're political writers. Yeah, I, I mean, like, even Hoppe has to go back to arguing about Kant and all these, you know, Emmanuel Kant and whatever. Yeah. And uh, Anyway, go, go ahead. But there is one on Ayn Rand. Because yeah. she was a philosopher. Well, so, okay. I, I mean, yes, she has like a school of philosophy, objectivism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she, she is not, she's, she's more in, in academia, she's more considered kind of an anti-philosopher in a way, which would garner her conversation because she was at least taking on the philosophers in a way as to where all these other guys are just like Rothbard and Hoppe. I mean, Rothbard's building off of Rand. Hoppe's building off of Rothbard after a fashion. And I mean, there's just, there's nothing, there's nothing original going on. And there's no real conversation from, uh, from underpinning and uh, like argumentation ethics. A lot of people say Hoppe deserves to be in, in, uh, uh, like in philosophical texts because mm-hmm. of argumentation ethics or, or yeah, I mean, no, it, it's, a, it's, it's a, it's a preposterous, <laughs> <Just no. laughs> it's a preposterous idea that has ready-made flaws Within it. What are the flaws in argumentation ethics, just briefly? Well, so the big one is that it doesn't consider time. Wait, I guess we should back up here. What is the basic 
Could you describe argumentation ethics like a basic premise real quick? So the basic idea is with with argumentation ethics is that because you're arguing, say, over like, uh, you know, some kind of resource or something that you because you're arguing, you're presupposing a few ideas, like a few norms between each other, like say nonviolence and stuff like this. And so the claim is that this uh, is where the non-aggression principle uh, you know, comes, comes okay, out. Okay. Because you're having a philosophical debate, you're presupposing that it's wrong to hit people right. to convince them of their ideas or okay. Yeah. But I mean, but there's, there's massive problems with this. I mean, for one, you're not always arguing, <laughs> you know, like, like to claim that this is where the basis of, of, of moral uh, human interaction comes from uh, just doesn't fly. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't consider like, well, but what happens, you know, with with an argument, what happens over time? Um, what do you mean? What happens over time? Well, over time, like your mind can change. And so, mm-hmm. I, I mean, like there's there's a lot. Anyway, I'm being very, very basic, but there there are there are massive issues with this and not every. Yeah, I'm sure it's hard to explain something that takes a whole book in just one sentence. But yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so there are critiques of it, just like there are with any philosophical yes. thing. All right, so here is the uh, here is the entry on Ayn Rand. Rand, Ayn, nineteen oh five to eighty two, Russian born novelist whose extreme and simplistic views give her a following on the political right. Jesus, that sounds incredibly biased. <laughs> her philosophy of objectivism, in quotes, is in fact Simple egoism, a doctrine against which there are large moral and psychological objections. See Butler Joseph Prisoner's Dilemma. Politically, she could see nothing but good in unfettered capitalism. Oh, my God. They really gave Rand the shaft. Yeah, they gave they really did not do her justice. Holy shit. Well, again, this is like I was saying, where in academia, she's seen as kind of the anti philosopher. So, yeah, the philosophers attack. Damn, Uh, they're really obviously attacking her. I mean, like, I don't think Ayn Rand was perfect, of course, but come on, give her some credit for like, you know, the A is A, like the objective reality stuff. That's gold. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Even if you don't, if you're a freaking commie, you know, like, I guess you don't believe that if you're a total commie. Well, I mean, <laughs> Rand makes appeals to Aristotle. You know, I mean, you, you go down the, or even, uh, you know, Thomas Aquinas. I mean, you go down the list of them. Um, but, uh, you know, to say that it's egoism, I mean, there's nothing wrong. They're saying that they have, you know, problems with egoism. That's, of course, you know, Stirner's kind of philosophy or that's his philosophy who was in the book that uh that that was that's actually the next part of the email let's get to that the dictionary buyer says if i may preemptively answer a question i think brian might ask here is the entry on egoism here's what this dictionary has all right let's do it egoism egoism is usually considered in two forms psychological egoism is the view that people are always motivated by self-interest Ethical egoism is the view that whether or not people are like this, they ought to be like this. Usually, this is advanced in the form that rational behavior requires attempting to maximize self-interest. Psychological egoism is usually thought to depend upon confusions, such as reasoning from, all my actions need a motive which is mine, true, to, a state of myself is the object of all my motives, false, or at any rate, not proven. Critics such as Joseph Butler also emphasize that without other objects of desire, a life spent absorbed in one's own pleasure cannot well get off the ground. See hedonism paradox of. (laughs) (laughs) We need something independent to spark the pleasure. 
Ethical egoism is often argued to be self-defeating in that a society of egoists do worse for themselves than a society of altruists see prisoners' dilemma. The same thing that he criticized Rand for. Right. Another fundamental objection is that it is inconsistent with the nature of trust and friendship that each party should be motivated solely by self-interest. Yet the ethical egoist gives no reason why these goods should be given up in favor of an egoistic conception of rational behavior. See also altruism, friendship, homo economicus. Wow. Yeah, they skewered him. Well, yeah. Both but, him and Rand. Okay, yeah. but let's be clear here that egoism is considered a valid philosophy. I mean, whether they have disagreements and they have their problem, you know, they bring out the prisoner's dilemma and all that, which is just like, okay, why wouldn't two people cooperate? You know, why wouldn't two quote unquote rational people cooperate? That's what that's all about. Mm -hmm. Um, I get that. But I mean, but it is, you know, my point in asking, hey, is Hoppe and Rothbard in there? It's because, you know, just to say, look, even just the recognition of egoism in the text gives validity to the concept. (laughs) Even okay. so, bad press is better than no press, right? Right, yeah. I mean, <laughs> which is what Hoffman and Rothbard got. Yeah, <laughs> they didn't even get dignified. Yeah, they with got an no entry. press. <laughs> That's what it is. It's better to have bad than none, and they 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 had none. Because and and the reason I brought that up is because it really drives me insane that there's so many people that want to like write off egoism and they want to write off you know some of these you know even hedonism some of these other ideas and they want to write it off with. Hoppe or Rothbard or whatever, and, and and they're saying, you know, that that people are stupid if they bring up the concept of spooks or phantasms, which are part of egoism. And I instantly re- respond with, "Fuck, you know, no, like th- those those are totally valid in the textbooks." Not, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't care about the textbooks, frankly. I'm just saying that if if we're going to be caring about books, then in books about philosophy, those are completely valid concepts. Screw you for saying that they don't mean anything, uh, because to, to to if you go to Cambridge, if you go to Harvard, you pick your school, you pick your Ivy League, whatever. They are accepted concepts. They are something that you could actually argue for. OK. And, and so to say that they don't mean anything is just stupidity on, on, you know, on that person's part. You can disagree with them. That's fine. But they are far more recognized, far more valid concepts within philosophy than anything Rothbard or Hoppe put out there. And I mean, not like they're night and day, you know, and it's not because just because, you know, Sterner has been around for almost 200 years. Mm. That's not the reason why it's not like he just got grandfathered in or something. (laughs) It's because his ideas have bearing and merit as to where the other guys. Well, right. hmm. Well, Ayn Rand got an entry and she was a contemporary of both Rothbard and Hoppe. Right, exactly. And and yeah, so what did she get grandfathered in? No. no. It's because she had some underpinnings and these other things that warranted that were valid enough that they warranted response. You know, in in these books. I, look, I don't care. I don't give a shit about Rutledge or Cambridge or any of that stuff. I really don't. But let's be clear here that you know, if if you're going to want to if you want to argue philosophy, well, you you're going to have to go down its history and Rothbard and Hoppe are not a part of it. They're, they're just they're not yeah <laughs> so sterner is sterner wins sorry he's taken seriously as a philosopher because they're fighting him you know I mean, first they first they ignore you they're they're ignoring rothbard and hoppe right first they ignore you then they laugh at you they're laughing at ayn rand yeah. then they fight you they're fighting sterner yeah and then you win <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right i mean like granted in his day in his contemporaries like there was a couple different ways that 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 
Sterner's work was looked at either that it was just, uh, it was dangerous or that it was so ludicrous that it couldn't possibly bring on any harm. But that's why people would talk about it. You know, I mean, and, and that's happened with a few different books and ideas and throughout history, you know? Uh, so it's not like he necessarily gets praise or ever got praise, but people recognize that he at least started from the beginning. You know, he, he you know, he has as a kind of a, his initial philosophical premise or whatever, um, just like, you know, Kant or, or any of these other big names of philosophy would start off with. And he built up from there. He did the homework. He mm. did the work, regardless of whether they thought it was ridiculous or not. He, he, he did it as is accepted, uh, you know, by the, I guess you could say the, the, the philosophical process. So anyway, I, I, I've talked about that far too much. Uh, there's more to the email. Oh boy. All right. <laughs> he said, compare. Now we heard the entry on Sterner in this mm-hmm. dictionary philosophy. The dictionary buyer said, compare this to the entry on egoism in the glossary of enemies of society an anthology of individualist and egoist thought. Aha. Okay. So now we're on the egoist turf. Egoism. Egoism is a philosophical perspective that offers a powerful defense of individuality within an authoritarian society and herd-like populace. A philosophical perspective that places subjectivity at the center of any serious discussion of freedom right where it belongs. The concept of the individual, the unique one, is cardinal to egoist philosophy, encouraging every individual to pursue and actualize their own interests as the unique beings that they are, what we'd call interest or desire, when not viewed through the tinted spectacles of idealism. Egoism properly understood is to be identified with what Max Stirner calls ownness, a type of autonomy that is incompatible with any suspension, whether voluntary or forced, of individual judgment. Stirner's method of self-liberation is opposed to faith or belief. He envisions a life free from dogmatic presuppositions, the tyranny of ideas, and freed from any, quote, fixed standpoint. What Stirner proposes is not that concepts should rule people, but that people should rule concepts. In other words, when the theory by which I live becomes unlivable, I throw out the theory, not myself. Woo! (laughs) Ideas are the creation of human minds, and if they grow over my head, the egoist has given his or herself the power to cut them back down to size. As sacred ideas, as absolutes before which the individual is powerless and humble, God, man, state, nation, family, morality, justice, etc., must be sought out and exposed for what they are, high-order abstractions for which there are no self-evident operational tests." The conscious egoist has taken due thought on these matters and has jettisoned all these phantoms, those abstract principles which haunted him or her when they floated back and forth on the tides of conventional thought. And having discarded all preconceived ideas, spooks, the conscious egoist ultimately rejects, sorry, the conscious egoist ultimately recognizes as a motive nothing outside themselves. Egoism is somehow akin to anarchism but the differences overshadow the commonalities. As one would expect of anarchists, egoism is somehow akin to anarchism, but the differences overshadow the commonalities. As one would expect of anarchists, egoists wholly reject alleged duties of citizenship, requirements of law, loyalties of patriotism, and every other imposition which attends the state. But whereas anarchism involves advocacy of social reform, egoists are not are just as scornful of any duty to reform society as they are scornful of duties to the state. Mm, amen. 
To the egoist, the state calls for each to set aside personal interest in favor of the good of the society as dictated by law or patriotism. And anarchists also call for each other to set aside personal interest in favor of the good of society as dictated by anarchist theory or morality. In this rejection of moralism, there is a remarkable consistency to the egoist position. The total amoralism that results by taking this idea to its extreme is similar to the anti-authoritarianism produced by pressing to the anarchist extreme, and indeed includes that as a subset. The individualist biases in, the individualist biases in anarchism are enormous, but egoism goes much further. All questions are resolved by consideration of the will of the individual alone. So it is that egoism is simultaneously inside and outside the anarchist milieu. Some threads of anarchist theory are a perfect fit with egoism, particularly those that make no retreat from the radical vision of anarchism as an absence of any authoritarian prohibition. Yet most are in stark contrast with egoism, especially where cooperation, non-aggression, or individual rights are ranked as moral imperatives. Even as egoists reject the shoulds and oughts by which anarchist social forms are promoted, egoists will favor whatever they like in the way of interpersonal interaction. Not surprisingly, egoists are often very comfortable with anarchistic relationships, especially those of the most spontaneous, existential, immediate, and non-utopian forms. But because egoism is formulated in terms of the attitude of the egoist and not in terms of social structures or political conjecture, there is no limit on what an egoist might choose. The egoist is a self-owner who is liberated from all ideologies and intent on protecting him or herself from their blandishments. It is therefore impossible to characterize or constrain what actions might come out of fully egoistic motivation. Obviously, such a completely self-centered self-interested outlook does not automatically lead one to anti-statist conclusions, but there has always been a small minority of anarcho-egoists in our ranks who seek to merrily gratify their appetites and smash the state. (laughs) (laughs) Their marginalized ideas could function as a continuous warning against left-leaning, mass model, and moralistic forms of anarchist thought, but they've been relegated to near invisibility at the periphery of the anarchist canon, at least in the U.S., by the ideologically threatened anti-state leftists and anarcho-liberals who want their own milquetoast views on the matter to prevail. <laughs> this anthology, I love that word, milquetoast. Yeah. <laughs> I was pictured like a piece of French toast, like bread floating <laughs> in milk, who want their own milquetoast views on the matter to prevail. This anthology is a small attempt to draw attention to those suppressed voices and to help recover anarchism's original impetus, the unqualified negation of authority. For it's not only the vigor of anarchist resistance that's at stake, but the vigor of anarchist thought in general, its very basis and its functioning. Highest regards, dictionary buyer. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'll give some high regards to all those words. I mean, holy shit. That's awesome. That's just so much richer and so much more complete and so much more accurate as to what egoism actually is than that little crappy entry in the dictionary. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I totally did nothing but attack it. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, so two quick points, if I can. I don't want to wrap, we want to wrap up here. Uh, But so I, you know, I regularly use the term egoist anarchist. Uh, because most people don't understand 
that that's what egoism is. I understand that classical egoists, and I have lots of their texts. I mean, my my in my studio, they're they're line they line the shelves. Okay, uh, they wouldn't call themselves anarchists, and I understand that, and I get that concept. And I've had people. I have a very popular video on, and yes, it is a very popular uh, video on YouTube about egoism and hedonism and all that. Um, and I've had people bring that up. It's like, oh, Sterner wouldn't call himself an anarchist and all stuff. I I get it, but the thing is, is that you. I think the two words actually do work very well together kind of like what that whole paragraph was describing uh you know as, as far as how that goes now the other thing i want to bring up they mentioned the hedonist paradox earlier and they mentioned and and there's this kind of this attack with the prisoner's dilemma and everything about how like it doesn't make any sense um that that people that you know why why would people work together out of just self-interest and and all this it's like how how does it not turn into you know one person just trying to be a tyrant over everybody else how does it not become all of this i think this is the parts that people this is where science comes in on egoism and that is is that i mean look empathy is again is a biological universal every almost everything on planet earth has it you know that has any kind of sentience uh i mean and and that that plays that plays a part i mean i think the answer to the paradox that they kind of brought up about egoism is yes you the every so with egoism everything gets measured against the individual yes you are the most important thing in the universe but so is the person standing next to you and that's where it becomes a paradox. That's where it doesn't seem to make sense. How can two people be the most important? How, how can more than one, if one person, if the individual is the most important thing in the universe, how could someone else also be the most important thing in the universe? Right. That's the hard concept that I think people, I don't know why it's a hard concept. I totally get it, you know, but for a lot of people, I guess they see that as, as a complex notion. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I get where it could be a paradox, but it's one that exists. You know. Yeah. I mean, as far as how can people cooperate and still be acting in self-interest? Well, I mean, simple. Sometimes you can achieve a lot more in a group or work by working together than you can alone. Sure. I mean, and this is where love comes in. You know, love is when your happiness is tied in with somebody else's. You're cooperating mm -hmm. for your own sense of happiness. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, like there's nothing crazy about that at all. Uh, so, it, yeah, it's I, I don't understand why these are hard concepts for people. But, you know, I thought that was a beautiful thing, and you read it beautifully, and it was Thank beautiful you. to hear, and I, that should, like, be cut out as a separate clip. Oh, well, you YouTube can cut it out, then. I might do that. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, um, I think that's going to do it for today. Yeah, boy, Thank that's you. enough. <laughs> this has been Sex and Science Hour. Stay tuned for our after show, sexandsciencehour.com. You've just heard Sex and Science Hour. Game over. Play again next week. We're back with the after show. 
So the after show is where we talk about stuff.sexandsciencehour.com. Don't you forget it. And actually, we just updated the website this week. I updated the website because Brian does does other stuff during the day. <laughs> I do the Sex and Science Hour website. I did help with some of the graphics, late. though. <laughs> no, Brian, you know... In all seriousness, you actually do most of the work for posting the show and putting it out on social media. Mm-hmm. I hate promoting things. It's not my thing. It's not my bag. <laughs> I let you handle that, and you're very good at it. And you're great at making graphics as well, which is another one that's not my strong suit. I do the production on the show. I do the audio stuff. I set up the studio, I and I do the WordPress website. So, you know, we have a pretty good division of labor going on here for the show. Um, but anyway... Uh, this week, I was working on the website a little bit for Sex and Science Hour, yes. and um, I actually added a banner that you can just click to go shopping on Amazon at stuff.sexandsciencehour.com, or you can type in that URL, or you can, if you're on our website, sexandsciencehour.com, anyway, you can click one of the multiple links that will take you to our Amazon page. And all of those ways are ways that you can get on our after show and uh, take part and actually show us what you bought. Anonymously. Um, anonymously, yeah. We can't see who bought it. We can just see what was bought. And uh, we'll talk about it on the after show. So, yeehaw. <laughs> <laughs> and what was bought in the last week here on Sex and Science Hour? Oh, it's always an interesting time here. Uh, we had a MacBook Pro charger. That's probably the least interesting item. But it's one of those things that's, you know, white and it has little prongs that fold out. And it charges with a magnet because it's very pretentious. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we also had the Nike Men's Metcon 2 training sh- shoe. This looks like a serious running shoe. It's got camo on the bottom. Not that having your feet camoed is going to help you blend in, but it looks cool. And it's got little um, shoelaces. It's I don't a- know. Like, you look like you have legs and no feet. Like, what the hell? You're just running around. It's like, what the hell? Right, is the this? feet become invisible. It yeah. almost is like lets you go places where no pull, man has gone before. I always pull that on people that wear camo. I mean, it's fine if people want to do that. I don't care. But it's, what? it's just anytime somebody's wearing camo, I'm like, oh shit, I didn't see you there. <laughs> don't sneak <laughs> up hilarious. on me like that. Yeah, I mean, you I, should definitely keep giving them shit about yeah. that because it's really funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay, so we got a couple of other things, if they will uh, load here. Well, tr- um, okay, Royal Craft Luxury Wood Bamboo Bathtub Caddy Tray with a free soap holder. So this is a thing. It's a wooden tray that you can put anything on, but especially it will fit over the bathtub. So it like balances on top of the bathtub so that you can read a book while you're in there. You can put food on it. You can balance like a candle on it. You can do all kinds of shit. So this is great for a romantic bubble bath evening. I like this. With your sweetie heart. (laughs) I like it too. (laughs) And it's pretty because it's, you know, bamboo and it's like finished nicely in brown finish. Um, The price was originally 75 bucks, but it's down to 35 on Amazon. Those ruthless negotiators there (laughs) somebody bought try me tiger sauce again this has been purchased before um try me tiger sauce is a leading this is an exotic moderately spicy blend of 28 ingredients in a cayenne pepper base with a touch of sweet and sour it's perfect for meat seafood and poultry okay it's mostly you know hot peppers vinegar sugar salt and other spices so 
I can see why they call it Tiger. Um, let's see, some Nar MacBook charging accessories. That's kind of boring. Um, <laughs> yeah. A replacement battery cartridge for something. I have no idea. It just looks like a little green battery, so I'll skip over that. Oh, cool. Applied magnets, strong N52 neodymium magnet, one inch cube. Neodymium magnets are some of the strongest ass magnets ever. If you have one, it's like almost impossible to pull it off the refrigerator because it's just <laughs> clinging to it so hard. And this is a cube. So this is not fucking around here. It's a one inch cube and uh, it's about, you know, about the size of a dime. So this will really stick something to your fridge. If you are interested in that, you can also kind of put them together, I guess. It's hard to build like magnet sculptures out of neodymium because they're a little too magnetic. You know, they're all just magnetized together in a clump. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, that looks pretty cool. It was 10 bucks. So, you know, this is a serious magnet. That's the real deal. One inch magnet for 10 bucks. Apple MagSafe to MagSafe converter. I don't know what MagSafe is. MagSafe, yeah, it's a type of, it's for the AC adapter for Macs that are, they're really nice because they keep people from tripping over the cords uh, because if somebody like happens to trip over it, it just, you know, very conveniently will kind of like the magnets will. Oh, oh, I see. So it doesn't like fuck up your cord. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very nice move on, uh, on Apple's part. That's cool. Yeah. Even though I think they got rid of them now. I don't, I don't think the mag. Well, you can get it on Amazon. Well, of course. (laughs) (laughs) On stuff.sexsciencehour.com. 45 watt MagSafe L-tip power adapter charger. So this is the accessory, the counterpart to that. Mm -hmm. Um, Qualo silicone rings for men. Safe wedding band, yoga, CrossFit, rubber ring for weightlifting, training, exercise, fitness, medical grade silicone. Nice. Is this a finger ring or a penis ring? <laughs> Let's see here. Mission and about us. Qualo's mission is to improve people to improve their quality of life by committing to love selflessly, live athletically and play outdoors constantly from being tired of taking our wedding rings on and off it became our mission to create a solution after many hours materials and evolutions we found medical grade silicone wedding rings were the answer to our problem and qualo was born so it's a wet it's a wedding ring that isn't going to slip off (laughs) okay um or does it go under your ring? I'm so confused. No, I think it is the ring. Wow, that's so interesting. Okay, a silicone wedding ring for 20 bucks. I mean, this is pretty good. This is like as good as it gets. Sure. I'm going to have to buy myself one of these. I mean, this is pretty cool. But it looks like a sex toy to me. I don't know. I'm not going to lie. It looks like <laughs> a sex toy. Tomorrow Kitchen Instant Marinator. 2.5 liter capacity for $26. We actually had one of these purchased before. Maybe somebody got a second one or they heard about it on our show and they got another one. That's cool. So you it, you basically it's a vacuum sealed container that you put meat in to marinate and you use the vacuum pump to pump the air out of it so it doesn't go stale. And ah. then you put it in there, I guess it marinates faster or something. Okay. 
Um, BAFX products, Bluetooth OBD2 scan tool for Android devices. Oh, that's handy. That's handy. So that's this, for your car. That you can connect your smartphone to your car and scan the OBD2 port. And you can get the codes. Oh. That way you can do your own repair or maybe reset your computer on, the, oh, on your car. That's that cool. I wonder handy. what they're doing with that. They might be like hacking their car. Could be. That You would need that if you were going to do that. Yeah, that's slick. Naritiva 20 LED photo clip string lights, Christmas lights. So this is like a string of Christmas lights, but each light is a clip. So you can hold up um, a a picture or a postcard or anything you want with an illuminated clip. That's really clever. That's pretty cool. It's like a string of Christmas lights, but each one is a clip. So you hold up ornaments or whatever. Very cool. And that was $9. Ooh, some hentai. Monster Musume Mi, Mia and Poppy card game character sleeve collection. Anime Lamia Harpy Girl Everyday Life. Wow. I I don't know what's going on there, but it sounds exciting. TNA here. <laughs> <laughs> Eliki USB rapid car charger for Samsung Galaxy S7, S6, Note 5, and more. That's cool. That's a good thing to have. Yeah. You know, it just plugs into the... It's just a standard car charger, really. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Soapy soap sack. Soap saver in ice blue and heather. So what this thing does is it's a bag that you put some soap in. And it's like rough on the outside. So what you can do is hold on to it and rub it on your skin, and the soap is inside, so little pieces of soap are coming out. As you exfoliate, it's also washing your skin. Uh-huh, and it's okay. a ba- since it's a bag, you can hang it up, and it doesn't, um, the, the soap will last and last. Nice. <laughs> so it's called the Soapy Soap Saver. And Scooby-Doo Apocalypse, number 16. Woo, one of my favorite comic series. All right. And a book, this is a very interesting book, Managing herpes, living and loving with HSV. An estimated 1 million Americans are infected each year with genital herpes. Though most are unlikely, are initially unaware of the infection, those diagnosed may face difficult questions on how they acquired herpes and how to manage it. This book provides a balanced perspective on medical and emotional issues surrounding herpes, including treatment options, transmission, pregnancy, telling your partner, and the impact on sexuality. Well, that sounds like a great thing to have. Yeah, very and important. We book. need to destigmatize herpes because everybody has. I mean, not everybody, but lots of people have. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening to Sex and Science Hour. Check us out at sexandsciencehour.com. We'll see you next week. Woo.